Today we're going to talk about Gaia. The way I'd like to do it is talk about the Gaia as a scientific theory or a hypothesis. And then after, I'd like to talk a bit about maybe a more spiritual perspective. Right, so let's start off with Gaia the name. Um, and where does Gaia come from? You probably know that something Gaia is something to do with the Earth Goddess. So I thought I'd take us right back to where Gaia comes from. And the earliest reference I could find to this is Gaia, the Earth Goddess, comes back right the way back into mythology, into prehistory. But the first vaguely written accounts of it are related to the Orphics in Crete, uh, the followers of the philosopher and priest Orpheus. And it seems that the story in which Gaia is, is, is actually first referred to in an account is of Indo-European origin and it emerged in various forms in different cultures in Egypt, in Greece, in India and in Northern Europe. But the story before it was actually in a, some form of written account is probably obviously much, much older than that. And this is one version of the account of Gaia, one of the very earliest accounts referenced to Gaia. In the beginning there was darkness, and in the darkness there hovered a black-winged bird, Nyx. Nyx laid an egg. The egg hatched, and from it emerged Eros, who flew away on golden wings. The two halves of the eggshell sprang apart. One became Uranus, the sky, the other became Gaia, the earth. So that's really the first sort of reference I can find that I could read out to you. In time, of course, aspects of Gaia have become enshrined in gods that we know from Greece and Rome and so on. But Gaia is the fundamental archetype for Mother Earth. And she's female because she nurtures us from our birth. The Earth provides us with the things we need to survive. There is also another side to Gaia. So apart from being the feminine that nurtures us and keeps us alive and gives us our comforts, there is also the vengeful side of Gaia. In other words, if you transgress, she can fight back and destroy you. Even before anything was written down, you'll no doubt have seen figures like this, which refer back, they're essentially fertility symbols, that go back to the Stone Age, and that's just a tracing of one such that's several thousand years old, of, you know, the sort of voluptuous, life-giving Earth Goddess. And in fact, Gaia is enshrined in our everyday language because geology and geography and anything relating, you know, terms like that that relate to the Earth, GE is uh, the Greek word for Earth. So, you know, in a sense, the stem from Gaia, GE, in geology, geography, and so on. So why, in the last few years, has Gaia become more prominent? I mean, what caused a revival of Gaia? I'm going to talk about the man that was largely responsible for that, who was a scientist. And that man was James Lovelock, who actually was a cyberneticist. In other words, he was a man that like to make robots and work with computers. And in fact, back in the 1960s, he was the professor of cybernetics at Reading University. And at the time, 
NASA wanted to send an expedition, but a, a, a non-manned expedition, obviously, to Mars to find out, among other things, whether there was life on Mars. And they asked him to build a robot. Well, they asked him to, to build something that will allow them to work out whether there was life on Mars. And, of course, you can imagine what they were expecting was something like, a bit like a moon buggy, or, in fact, what they later, in fact, did send to Mars, which was something that could collect samples and so on and could shuttle around on the surface of Mars and dig up bits of dirt and then discover where there was life there. He went back to the problem, what is life? If he's going to try and find out whether there's life on Mars, let's go back to basics, because we cannot assume necessarily that life on Mars will be anything like life on Earth. You know, it could be like you see in Star Trek and whatever. You know, it could be, theoretically, a sort of lump of silica or something. Or it could be a little energy field that you can't actually see. It could be a sort of bit of phosphorescence somewhere. We cannot necessarily assume it will take the form that we're used to. So he says, OK, let's get back to basics. As far as we know, what do living things do? And there, there are lots of definitions of life. And I'm not at this stage going to talk about the spiritual aspect. I'm going to talk about the biological aspect. So what characterises life? And what does a living thing do? Well, living things, obviously they grow, they repair themselves, they have to maintain themselves. And to do that, they need a supply of energy. So that's fundamental. A living thing needs a supply of energy. It needs to take in raw materials from its environment and some of that raw material it actually can extract the energy from it in any case it will use that raw material to build up the parts of the body so it has to process those raw materials and when it does so it produces waste and when it does all these things it modifies its surroundings so fundamentally Biological things modify that's the, their surroundings. They take in things, they process them, and they produce waste. They also are highly ordered. Living things are much more highly ordered than the environment in which they occur. So if you were to study you know, the space we occupy, our body occupies, the complexity and order within our body is much, much, much higher than in our immediate environment. And to do that requires a continual supply of energy. So the point is, in order to maintain a living organism, you have to change the environment around it. Because you have to take out raw materials from the environment, process them, alter them, and then excrete waste. In doing that, you change the environment. And that's what he was saying. That's how you could find out if living organisms are there. Even if, in fact, you couldn't see them. Even if you couldn't actually see the organism, you could infer its existence by the fact it's changed the environment. Change the environment from what? Well, change the environment from that you would expect, from purely physical and chemical considerations. So if you just took physics and chemistry into account, you can actually predict the environments you'd find on different planets. And in fact, what they do, astrophysicists and, and exobiologists do, they actually say, well, by physical and chemical laws, we can predict this planet 
will have these kind of elements in the atmosphere uh, with this composition and so on. And they can hypothesize that and test it out and then look at lots of different planets and in fact star systems and actually work out whether that's really so. And once they build up a good database of saying, well, we think it, it should be like that. Shall we check it out? Yes, it is like that. Once you've done that with several hundred star systems, and once you've done that with the available planets in the solar system, you've actually fairly confident about your ability to predict what, in effect, is a dead planet or a dead star system, and what is one where you'd expect life to be. Because where there's life, there'll be an alteration of what you expect. In other words, it will, it will deviate from purely physical and chemical laws. Now, you may say, well, how the heck can they say what's on these different planets or even what's in these different star systems? Well, it's all done with light, really, or electromagnetic radiation. And nowadays, they can actually process electromagnetic radiation coming off planets, coming off star systems, and, and interpret that information to actually calculate the composition of the atmosphere, for example. What are the chemicals in the atmosphere and what are the proportions of them? And again, they can, they can test that out and then once they send probes out there, they can confirm it. And so they've done that with all the missions that you all know about that have gone to the near planets and now the further planets too. So that's what you could look for. Is there life on a planet? You look for a, a change in the environment from that which you expect according to physical and chemical laws. And if you apply that, I mean, he says, so frankly, you d I don't need to send a robot to Mars, thank you very much, which was a bit disappointing to the NASA scientists because they were all hoping for some little buggy that was going to roam around on Mars. He said, you don't actually need to go there. All you've got to do is, is shine the right sort of projectors at it and, and analyse the electromagnetic radiation that you're going to pick up. Um, and you'll figure out what the atmosphere is and then from that you can figure out is it a living or a dead planet and he said of course it's a dead planet you won't find life there and the point is where you do find life it will change the environment and you would be able to pick that up even if there's not a huge amount of life around you would be able to pick up that deviation so he said, it's a dead planet. And as far as we know, it's been supported ever since. And it's quite interesting to see, well, what would our Earth be like were it a dead planet? Well, if it were a dead planet, Earth would be like this. It would have a huge amount of carbon dioxide. The, the amount of carbon dioxide we actually have is a fraction of 1%. But it would be... 95% according to calculations. The nitrogen level, well in our atmosphere at the moment the nitrogen is about 80%. In a non-living Earth it would be 2 to 4% and there'd be just about zilch oxygen around. And the average temperature, oh dear, would be 300 degrees C because we're relatively close to the sun. That would be if the Earth were a dead planet. And the Earth being a living planet, carbon dioxide, 0.03%, much less than 1%, but as you know, it's rising. Uh, nitrogen level, nearly 80%, 79%, oxygen about 21%. So, obviously, life fundamentally alters the environment, hugely, in fact. And in doing so, in this case, 
it lowers the Earth's surface temperature. That's just an average figure taken, you know, from the poles to the equator. 13 degrees C. That's the effect of life altering the composition of the atmosphere. So that's what Lovelock said back in the late 60s. And he thought on about this. So he said, obviously life has a profound effect on the atmosphere for a start. And in fact, on the environment as a whole. But he took it one step further. And he said, well in fact, I wonder whether it's, it's actually the case that living things regulate the planet. They don't just alter it but they can actually regulate the planet rather like you know thermostatic control in a house can regulate the temperature yeah could switch the central heating on and off and regulate the temperature he said i reckon that you know living organisms can regulate the planet to make conditions comfortable for them in other words they can somehow as an assemblage of organisms control the conditions on the planet. They don't just alter them, they actually control them. They actually regulate them. Not necessarily consciously, I'm saying, but somehow. That's a pretty tall order to say that. Certainly most biologists at that time would sort of throw their hands up. What a preposterous suggestion. What's he actually saying? Lovelock was saying way back in uh, the early 70s, he was saying I believe the Earth, in total, behaves like a living organism. The living systems of Earth create their own environments and conditions favourable to their continued existence. It's a second aspect of Gaia. And the third is, they do so, at least in part, via homeostatic mechanisms in which biotic, or living, parts and abiotic, non-living parts work together. In other words, the living world affects the non-living world and changes the environment to make it suitable for life. Lovelock was saying, I think the planet does that. And the planet does that through the activities of living organisms. In other words, if things get out of kilter, if the planet gets too hot, or too cold, then something will cut in to change, to bring it back to normal, a, a better, condi better conditions for life. I'm a biologist by training, and it's still, I have to remind myself every few years, just really how old the Earth is, and how long life has been around on it, and just really soak that in and take that in. There's a huge amount of evidence gathered from all sorts of dis disciplines to indicate that by and large the earth is 4.5 billion years old and that's an, an American billion right? in other words it's 4,500 million years old the earth in fact was formed at the same time as the solar system and the other planets and the moon and so on as far as we know life has been on the planet for at least 3.5 billion years probably 3.7 or so now bearing in mind the planet is 4.5 billion years that means that there has been life on the planet for most of the planet's age 4.5 and if life's been on it for 3.7 that's life's been on it for more than three quarters of the age of the earth 
which is always a bit mind-boggling to me. And the thing is, so, right, what's that got to do with Gaia? Well, the thing we're saying about Gaia is the world, the Earth acting like it's a living organism and controlling the environment, and the way it does that is through a homeostatic mechanism. Where's the evidence? And Lovelock would say, well, the best evidence is to start with is this. One thing we do know about stars is they undergo a particular cycle. Stars, wherever they are, undergo a cycle that we can observe and, and study. And the cycle is basically they get hotter until they get really hot and then they start cooling down. And so stars have a characteristic life history. A sun is a fairly normal kind of star, but the sun will have been getting hotter over that 4.5 billion years. It would have been getting hotter. And so you would expect, there's the Earth, the Earth would be getting hotter. But it's not been getting hotter. The Earth's temperature has been quite tightly controlled, regulated, we believe, somehow. Now, it could just have happened, you know, oh, well, the right atmosphere would developed, and that miraculously stopped the Earth getting warmer. Well, Lovelock say, well, that's a bit, you know... It's a bit far-fetched, really. It's actually more plausible to say something is happening to keep the temperature down. Now, we've already said that the living organisms have a huge impact on the environment, and we saw those percentages earlier. And Lovelock argues, and argued then, the reason that the planet has basically kept at a fairly stable temperature, despite the sun getting hotter is the fact that the atmosphere is altered to compensate and to shield the Earth from the effects of the sun's rays. It seems likely, because you can see, once life evolved, there is a massive change in the atmosphere. For example, remember that the very high level of carbon dioxide if the planet's non-living? Well, once it's alive, that level of carbon dioxide comes rocketing right down. Nitrogen level goes up you know, interesting things are happening. These sudden changes you can really attribute to the existence of life altering the atmosphere. Lovelock's arguing the planet's temperature has been controlled during the bulk of its history by the activities of living organisms. And you can imagine what people thought, you know, oh yeah, sure, how? Because the problem is... In biology, the idea of evolution, you know, that the, the living organisms are competing with each other to survive, and they're all trying to do each other down, you know, compete with a different species or nobble some other species or eat that species or whatever. They're competing with each other. So why should they kind of work together to regulate the planet? Surely that wouldn't happen. So Lovelock said, well, OK, I better, the, the best I can do for the time being is show you in a computer model how it could happen. And so, several years after he'd come up with the theory, he devised a computer model to show it. OK, let me try and explain this quickly. I won't get too bogged down in it, I hope. What we're trying to explain really here is how living organisms might be able to control the temperature of the planet. How could living organisms control the temperature of the planet if the sun's getting warmer? 
Right? We said we do know the sun's been getting warmer. The planet stayed roughly the same temperature. So how can the planet control its temperature? If, you, if you've got a rise in temperature, you can counter that by increasing the albedo of the Earth. Now, the albedo is the reflectiveness. And really, reflectiveness, if something is more reflective, it tends to be paler. So, you could make the Earth more reflective, so the sun's rays come in and the Earth sort of bounces them back out into space. You increase the albedo of reflectiveness of the Earth. So you could sort of, I don't know, have lots of snow on it and say, right, go, the sun's rays go bouncing off back into space. Another way would be, of course, to modify the nature of the cloud cover. Ah, he's talking about clouds now. Modify the nature of the cloud cover. If we think back to that earlier slide, you know, 20% of the Earth in that shot was covered with very highly reflected, reflective pale clouds. So you could modify the nature of the cloud cover on the Earth. One of the biggest problems in, in figuring out things like global warming and the effect of the greenhouse effect and so on is that clouds have such variable effects. Clouds can reflect light back into space, but clouds can also act as an insulator around the Earth. Different kinds of clouds have different effects. And so actually the effects of clouds are really quite complicated. In fact, that's the major flaw in predict, you know, climatic prediction models um, that try and analyse what's happening with global warming. A major flaw, anyway, is the fact that we don't know exactly how clouds work, to what extent they reflect, and to what extent they're insulators, and to what extent the different kinds of clouds have the two effects. But... We could just simply say, change the albedo of the Earth, make it more reflective, whether you use clouds, snow, or whatever, and you'll reflect more light back into space, and the, and the, the Earth won't heat up as much. And so you can lower its surface temperature. Conversely, if the Earth were too cold, you could boost its temperature by decreasing the albedo, in other words, making it darker, so there'd be less, say, snow around. That's a bit odd, actually, when you think it's got cold, but there we go. Um, and you can modify the nature of the cloud cover. So you could have, say, dark clouds or few clouds, so that the sun's rays would impact upon the Earth or the atmosphere and be held in there and help keep the Earth warm. Anyway, that's what he said. That's how it could work. But, the, you know, bear in mind, you can't just perform experiments on planet Earth. You've got to kind of come up with a way of suggesting how this could really happen using living organisms. And so that, you know, really, you have to start at this level talking about computer modelling. And so you say, right, well, how can we show this, this could occur with competing organisms? And all he did, he said, right, well, let's start really simple and, and let's imagine we have daisies and we're going to seed the earth with daisies. Remember, you know, we're back now in the 70s with a computer power that existed then. And also, you know, you've got to start off with a simple premise and then you can make it more complex later, as in fact they have. But the initial concept was, how can organisms regulate the temperature of the planet? Well, bearing in mind that the sun's getting hotter, this is the, the increase in temperature you would expect, right? 
bearing in mind that there's no regulation of temperature on planet Earth. As the sun gets hotter, the Earth gets hotter. In other words, that's how our dead planet would warm up as the sun got warmer. Is that okay? As it has been getting warmer. Now, let's imagine we're going to sow daisies on the planet. And there are two forms. There are dark daisies and there are pale daisies. Now, we know dark daisies will have a lower albedo, and so they'll absorb more heat energy. Light daisies will have a higher albedo and be more reflective, so they'll bounce more of the sun's rays away. This is what will happen on the computer program when you're sort of down here at the beginning. And in other words, it's pretty cold, and so you want to warm the planet, particularly into the program he put in. I think it was... The daisies can survive between 5 and 40 degrees C, but they grow best in the lower 20s. That's what he put into the computer. And so you start off, when it's cold, you've just got dark daisies growing. They're growing in the hottest part of the planet, because that's the only bit where they can survive. And they're dark, because they absorb light energy. Now, as the planet warms up, through history, then the dark ones move outwards from the equator. They can begin to colonise further towards the poles. And then you start to get the white ones occurring at the equator because the white ones are reflective. So if they're getting too hot, they just reflect the sun's rays away. So it's getting too hot in the equator for the dark ones. So they've colonised further out. But the white ones now can survive on the equator. And as you keep running the program, you discover that the white ones will spread out from the equator and the dark ones get sort of pushed out towards the poles where it's cooler. Okay? Because remember, they absorb more heat energy, so they'll get over hot, so they have to be at the poles. And if you run the program, eventually, of course, the white ones, it's too hot even for the white ones near the equator and the dark ones are sort of right, end up right at the poles. But, so what, you say? But what you'd find when you run a program like this is there is regulation of the temperature of the Earth. Instead of getting this heating effect like you expect, you get a plateau, a temperature plateau. And that's purely generated, in this case, in this computer model, it's purely generated by the relative reflectiveness of these two different kinds of daisies. Anyway, it's still a model. And at the end of the day, you have to start saying, well, it's still a model. We need to start looking around for real-life examples. And what we remember, what we're saying is, living organisms are altering the environment to make conditions better for them to survive. Right? They're regulating the environment somehow to their benefit. Now, this is pretty, it is pretty revolutionary stuff back in those days because scientists work in different disciplines. So biologists thought this was a you know, a lot of biologists thought this was a load of hokum, really. And then you've got people that studied the climate, the meteorologists, and thought, well, what's, what have organisms got to do with the climate? And then you've got geologists that are saying, well, what have organisms got to do with rocks? Yeah? Well, now we've come forward and we know, 
we know that organisms massively change the environment. I mean, you've only got to look around you to see that organisms massively change the environment. I mean, you can see the effect of humans from outer space, no problem. So, you know, we do massively affect the environment. Organisms do massively affect it. Um, but it is a moot point. Okay, they massively affect it, but can they regulate it to their benefit? Well, it's a good question to ask because once you start asking that question, you start looking at the world in a different way and you start doing research in a different way and by doing that you start coming up with interesting questions and very interesting answers. And one example, marine algae. Right? Now this is, you know, as a marine biologist, this is very exciting for me, but it's also one of the best examples of Gaia in action. Now, let me try and take you through it. Well, they are quite amazing things. You get such enormous congregations of these marine algae that they form swarms that are like 15, 20 miles long and 10 miles wide. And you can see them as great big green patches in the sea. And unfortunately, the slide that I don't have with me today shows one of these patches near Scotland. And it runs for about, well, I think it runs for about 30 miles off the coast of Scotland and it's about 10 miles wide and 30 miles long. And it is a patch of marine algae that are thriving and growing like mad. Now, so what, you say? Well, remember, we're interested in how living organisms could affect the environment and perhaps regulate it to their benefit. What they've discovered, and this is down to Lovelock again, sulphur. These marine algae are lo locked in, in a very interesting cycle called the sulphur cycle. Now back in, I think this was the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, they still, if you read the textbooks about the way chemicals were cycled in the, on the planet, you still found people saying, well there's a big problem with sulphur. Sulphur, you may not know this, but it is actually quite important for plants growing in the soil. They need sulphates. Uh, I know they need nitrates and phosphates and so on, but they do need sulphates as well. They do need sulphur. And the problem with sulphur, or sulphates in which sulphur is found, it gets leached off and it gets carried away in the rivers and it ends up in the sea. So all the time sulphur is, is leaving the earth's surface, leaving the land, and is ending up in the oceans. Now, somehow or other, unless it's just going to be lost all the time, it must be replenished. And you get sulphur from volcanoes, volcanic activity, sulphur pools and so on. But not enough for, to account for the fact that there's an awful lot leaching off and flowing off into the sea. Somehow or other, sulphur gets back from the sea onto land. Nobody knew quite how. But you got very learned chemists at the time saying, oh yes, it's all down to hydrogen sulphide. Now hydrogen sulphide, you know, you may know is bad egg gas. If you've ever smelt a stink bomb, that's usually hydrogen sulphide. Or obviously a bad egg, you know what a bad egg smells like, that's hydrogen sulphide. Now, when you go to the seaside, sometimes you do smell hydrogen sulphide, particularly where you get rotting seaweed. If you turn the seaweed over, you get hydrogen sulphide smell. Also, um, where it's very muddy, black mud, if you sort of stick a twig into the mud and shuffle it around, you get methane coming up, but you also get hydrogen sulphide sometimes coming up too, really smelly. The thing is, hydrogen sulphide is so poisonous 
that when you smell it, you know, it's almost doing you damage anyway, just the amount you smell. Really is nasty stuff. And so, really, the argument Lovelock was putting forward is if, if all the sulphur was getting back onto the land in the form of hydrogen sulphide, well, you'd smell it. You know, it would just be so obvious because we can smell a tiny amount in the air. And you'd have to be able to go to the seaside every time and smell bad egg gas and be almost overwhelmed by it. And that isn't the case. You can sometimes smell a sulfury smell at the seaside, but it's not precisely the smell of hydrogen sulfide. It is actually this chemical called dimethyl sulfide. Lovelock thought that dimethyl sulfide might be linked into the fact that sulfur gets back onto land by routes that they didn't know about at the time. So he decided to test his idea, and he went and sort of basically almost effectively hitchhiked hitchhiked on a boat that was going to Antarctica, the British Antarctic Survey. And he used one of his, I believe, his electron capture detectors to look for dimethyl sulfide en route. And he found it. You know, so when he went over the oceans towards Antarctica, found lots of DMS, we'll, we'll call it for short, DMS. So he said, well, there's a darn sight more DMS out here than there is hydrogen sulfide. Uh, and in fact, when you, when you stop and think about it, hydrogen sulfide won't tend to form where there's oxygen around. You tend to get hydrogen sulfide forming where there isn't oxygen. In other words, in nasty mud or in rotting seaweed. Um, so he says, loads of DMS around. I think it's DMS that's actually the carrier of sulfur that brings sulfur back onto land. Fair enough, so what? However, DMS has other effects, and one of its effects is it seeds clouds. So imagine you've got your 30 mile, and you can even get ones, you can get these algal blooms that are, you know, even more than 100 miles long. Imagine this algal bloom producing DMS. Out in the ocean, there is just about nothing to seed, seed clouds. Because clouds, to seed a cloud, you need what's called nuclei, you know, the, uh, like crystals or particles for the water droplets to form round, to form a cloud. Well, out in the ocean, you don't have that. Well, you do when you've got algae producing DMS. They actually seed clouds. And you can get clouds forming above where the algae are. And then suddenly you've got a situation whereby something that's a living organism is creating clouds. And clouds, we saw earlier, can be a major factor in altering, for example, the temperature of the Earth. Now, the, the algae in the oceans seeding clouds could be actually affecting the Earth's temperature by as much as 4 degrees C. Just the algae. So it could be lowering, for example, the Earth's temperature by 4 degrees C. Now, bearing in mind, you know, the average temperature of the Earth's surface is, we've said, 13 degrees C, to have lowered that by 4 degrees C, just due to these little marine algae, is pretty, pretty major, major importance. And that's just one mechanism. The problem has been, why would the algae do this? Are they sort of being you know, looking after the welfare of the planet to keep the temperature low. I mean, why would they do it? What's the payoff for them?
And so people have now been arguing, you know, if we're actually still talking about evolution and Darwin and so on, how could this be a benefit to these little algae? It's benefiting all the other organisms, so why would they do it? There must be a payoff for them too, otherwise they wouldn't do it. Well, the payoff, or rather they're looking into what the payoff is. They've had all sorts of ideas have been put forward. One is that DMS can break down into a substance, um, I'll have to check it if anybody wants to really know what it is, break down into a substance that's actually toxic to organisms that would eat the algae. So in other words, DMS has a subsidiary effect, or rather it could be being made by the algae, not to see clouds, but to keep predators from eating them. Or herbivores, I suppose they'd be actually, from, from eating them. Um, because they're little plants, basically, these algae, microscopic plants. Um, some people have argued that the DMS is there to um, counteract the effects of salt, the strong salt solution they live in. But most recently, in the scientific press, they've argued that the reason they do this is to be taken up into clouds. Because these things are really tiny. And they're so tiny, you know, you, you, you can't see them with a naked eye. You'd need quite a high magnification microscope to see them. To see them clearly, you need an electron microscope that will magnify at least, say, a thousand times to actually begin to see them. They are really tiny. They're so tiny that if you had a load of them in the top of the water and, you know, the wave went crashing and sent a load of spray up into the air some of those algae would just take flight and, and would waft around in the air. They wouldn't come back to Earth. It seems, the, the current ideas that they're testing, is the fact that these algae can encourage turbulence in the water, they can encourage cloud formation, and in doing so, they get taken up into the air. So what? Why? Why bother to be taken up into the air? Well, what do you think? What's an advantage for an algae to be taken up into the clouds? Living organisms have to survive, reproduce, and disperse. It's, if, you know, some people are arguing it's the third most important thing they need to do, fundamentally. They've got to survive, they've got to reproduce, and they've got to disperse. They've got to get to new places if they're going to colonise. And so the argument is, the reason they produced... Well, they may have had one reason for producing DMS in the first place, or a number of reasons, but if that gave them an advantage in dispersing, then DMS would evolve as a mechanism for cloud seeding. And it would allow them to disperse long distances that they're finding in Antarctica. There's a little rainfall, you know, of things from the sky that have been carried thousands of miles. So you go up in a, you know, high up in the atmosphere and there are all these little microbes floating around in the air that are being dispersed. So this is pretty... Uh, not only here have you got an example of how these organisms could regulate the temperature of the planet to some extent, but you can even argue why they would bother to because actually they're just trying to survive and disperse and the, and the side effect of that is they're actually regulating the planet at the same time. And it's a bit of a breakthrough because up till then the biologists were all sort of standing on the sidelines and saying, well prove it, you know, 
show us how it could happen. There's a whole spectrum of ways of looking at Gaia. And you've got the scientists at one end of the spectrum, and then at the very other end, you've got like the sort of new age connotations of Gaia. You know, like, like we're all on this planet together and all helping each other out and so on, and there's something intangible happening between us. I mean, I don't really... I don't sit at either end. I'm definitely somewhere in the middle. Because I, I do feel that pure view on either end isn't particularly helpful for the problems that we face at the moment. You know, I, I, you know, I, I think to address the problems that are facing the planet at the moment, it is useful to have a view that embodies both of these things, a scientific view and a, a, a more spiritual view. I don't see them as necessarily incompatible. He came up with the Daisy World model because some people were saying, it's all well and good to say that organisms can regulate the planet, show us how. Daisy World model tried to show how. And then they said, well, give us an example in real life. And here was one example. And as time has rolled on in the last year or so, it, it, it's, it's born a huge amount of fruit, the idea of Gaia. Even if we find ultimately, as scientists, if you like, that Gaia doesn't hold true, it has stimulated so much research. There are thousands of people across the world now doing research that's basically about Gaia. And what it's done, it's broken down the boundaries between the dis different disciplines. So you've got meteorologists talking with biologists and geologists. I haven't even started to talk about the geology. Living organisms have a massive effect on geology. You know, rock weathering. If you've got a rock, no, nothing living on it, it erodes really slowly. You cover it in moss, lichen and so on, and it erodes much, much faster. You know, hundreds of times faster. So the existence of life on a rock massively changes the rate at which it erodes. And as it erodes, you know, you're getting minerals and so on recycled. Old Gaia, in other words, the old ideas of the earth goddess that go back to like the fertility symbol, have these sort of aspects to them. That Gaia is a myth. It's a metaphor, you know, it's a way of describing aspects of the world it's spiritual in nature Gaia has a sort of intelligence to it um, a spiritual intelligence perhaps and Gaia you can you know it's responsive to requests so Gaia can be you can speak to Gaia and ask you know that the earth goddess looks after you and so on and so if you're going back to the old idea of Gaia the sort of spiritual idea maybe the pagan idea of Gaia it's something that you, you can, is out there, hidden, but controlling the world, for our, perhaps for our benefit, if we're willing to, you know, um, prostrate ourselves, perhaps, or ask for help from Gaia. And that's really the spiritual, the old spiritual idea of Gaia. And then the scientific idea of Gaia is, well, it's a scientific hypothesis or an idea. It's also a metaphor... You know, it, it's an explanation of something. It may or may not be the way it's described here, but it's a fruitful avenue of looking at the world to generate scientific research. Gaia is not spiritual in nature. Gaia does not have an intelligence as such, uh, but it's self-organising like a superorganism. I haven't really talked about a superorganism. Um, 
A superorganism is something bigger than an organism, an, in, an individual, that has the properties of an organism. And the best example I can think of really is a hive of bees. A hive of bees is a superorganism because inside a beehive, the bees actually work together to do things like regulate the environment in the hive. You've probably seen in documentaries, you know, you get bees standing at the entrance of the hive, fanning it to keep it cool, doing all sorts of things. They work together, the bees in the hive, to regulate the conditions. They bring water back in when it's getting too hot and the water evaporates and helps cool the hive. So the activities of lots of different individuals mean that the hive itself is like a single living organism made up of lots of different, hundreds of different organisms. And in a sense, you know, maybe the planet's like that. But here we've got, you know, countless billions of organisms of millions of different species working together. So the planet, if you like, is behaving as if it were a superorganism. Super it's the concept of Gaia useful in science? And the answer is undoubtedly yes it is, because it's, it's created a huge amount of research and we're now looking at the world in a new way. We're looking at the world in a way whereby non-living and living are not separate, they're interrelated, one influences the other in very subtle ways, and using mechanisms that perhaps can be likened to the way that organisms within themselves regulate themselves. So it's brought together lots of different scientific disciplines. They're beginning now to talk to each other. You know, if you look at the algae problem, you've got to going to have marine biologists talking with marine chemists, talking with meteorologists. That's pretty helpful, particularly bearing in mind the environmental problems that are facing us at this time. And yes, the conditions in the world are massively affected by the presence of living organisms. And Gaia puts living organisms at centre stage. Centre stage in affecting the geology of the planet, the chemistry and, and the way physics unravels on the planet. So, you know, it's putting organisms centre stage is incredibly important in affecting the whole environment. It gets us asking important questions that relate to the survival of the planet which is really about the next section. It stimulated research. I talked about the sulphur cycle and the way sulphur gets back onto land via DMS. But <coughs> similar work is actually happening in other cycles, like iodine, for example. But one of the most important things is, is Gaia is, offers us a vision of the planet. Um, a view of the Earth, a healthy view of the Earth, uh, a planet that I, I find this, I mean, I mean my background, sort of spiritual background, leans towards Buddhism really. And, and I find that the, the scientific concept of Gaia is very much in line with that, that the planet as a whole and all the organisms on it are interrelated. They impact upon each other. They're not distinct. They influence each other in very subtle ways. And I think that's a very healthy view. But let's remind ourselves that at the beginning, I, when I talked about the, the Earth Goddess, I, say, I said she nurtures us, but she's also vengeful if we do not behave in ways that, that are sort of in accord with her wishes. 
what I wanted to do was just finish off really with begin to touch upon the relevance of Gaia to the environmental problems that we're facing. It seems to me as a, as a somebody that's particularly interested in studying the oceans, that the problem we're facing at the moment, which is very obvious to most people, is the potential for global warming. What is the cause? All we can say is what's the most likely cause, and of course the most likely cause is atmospheric pollution. And if you look at carbon dioxide concentration, and if we think back to the very early stages of the talk, we said, well, there's very little carbon dioxide on our planet. It's only 0.03% of the atmosphere but if we look at the way that's increased to me that's very very worrying you know it, it we we're talking about Gaia and the ability to self-regulate but it's clear that there's been a very rapid change in atmospheric composition in a very short space of time mm. now yes it could well be that all sorts of mechanisms will counter that and maybe even are happening as we speak you know like trees will be taking in carbon dioxide, photosynthesizing and giving out oxygen at a faster rate, will help to counter it. But in the short term, it's not been able to work. And it's really coming to the point is, I wanted to end this talk really, is talking about us living in harmony with the planet or disharmony with the planet. Because obviously what we're doing at the moment which is the last bit I was going to come to, is we have been treating the planet as if we have dominion over the planet. You know, we decide, we, we want physical resources, we want chemical resources, we just take them, yeah, without regard to the repercussions of doing so. Um, now, this is, to me, very tangible evidence. I Really, you can't explain it any other way, I think, than this is caused by burning of fossil fuels. I don't really think you can argue there is some other cause that we don't know about. You know, I think it's fairly likely that is the reason for that sudden increase. And, of course, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas and is implicated in global warming. Now, we still don't really know whether global warming is actually occurring, but the best guess is it is, and the best, you know, it's best to assume it is if we're actually going to tackle it early enough or, or try and do something, yeah, do something about it. Most of the cultures that exist, uh, certainly the ones that are rampant in the Western world, Europe, North America, and, and many other parts of the world, are taker cultures which perceive the planet is there to be used and, and we take the resources what we want from it and of course our economies are driven by that you know we, we want new cars we want new things and we don't consider the environmental repercussions we just think well we've got to fuel the economy you know we've got to make more money we've got to have a better standard of living and so on and in order to support that we ha- need more resources and we've got to get them from the environment um, and that is the prevailing you know, paradigm that economies are working to at the moment. The old-fashioned, you know, the, the, if you like, some of the Aboriginal communities were lever cultures. In other words, they lived in harmony with the environment. You know, we can think of ones, the sort of perhaps rather romantic notion of North American uh, Aboriginal cultures, Native American Indian cultures, that they lived in harmony with the environment. It's probably likely that they did live more in harmony 
than, than we certainly do now. And they probably lived for thousands of years in harmony. In other words, they didn't take really more than the environment could withstand being taken. And, and they had a reverence for nature. And it's quite likely, you know, also I think you can look at perhaps the Aboriginal Australians in the same way, that they lived in harmony with nature, as far as we know, for long periods of time. And, and there were lever cultures. In other words, they, they took what they needed at that time, but they didn't sort of store huge surpluses that gave them power in the longer term. That since we've become very agricultural... Um, you know, we've had conurbations and cities and then we've begun to covet what's around us and store for the future and so on. Um, it's actually created a, a kind of society that's a taker society that takes from the environment and doesn't return or doesn't, doesn't leave or try and operate in harmony with the environment. And to me that is, if you like, the challenge for the future of how can we move towards more of uh, a lever-style way of living as opposed to a taker-style way of living. In other words, how can we live in harmon more in harmony with the planet? I, I don't think... It, it, it's not a sudden overnight change, is it? I mean, it, it's, first of all, you need an awareness of what the problems are, and then to start acting, you know, in your life, uh, making changes that set an example to other people. Don't you? and educate people, make them more aware. A way forward, I see, yeah. is that by blending the best of science, and the, it seems to me, okay, part of my argument I wanted to put across tonight is quite often when I give these talks, you've got people that are anti-science, and then you've got people that are fairly anti-spiritual. And it seems to me that a way forward has got to be a blend of both. We cannot revert, we cannot become a simpler world overnight. We can't sort of say, well, science is a bad thing or technology is a bad thing because it's destroying the planet, it's making us into a taker, well, we become a taker society. Um, how can we revert back to being a lever? But Technology and science can actually help us with that. Because, I mean, you know, we can be innovative and actually devise ways. I mean, rather, for example, than having new cars all the time, why don't we actually invest in or change the way we develop things to actually develop cars that will last the longest, that will be the least polluting, and actually make that something to strive for. You know, obviously a cultural change, a change in mindset, you've got to change people's minds first, and then they'll act differently. At one level, look how we've changed since the 1960s. I was talking about, you know, the marriage of the best of the spiritual and the scientific. I don't see them as mutually exclusive at all. But one is about increasing our connection with nature because it seems to me one of the problems we have is in a society like we have at, at present we're quite disconnected from nature I mean look at the room we're in today this is not a room that's connected with nature you know we're in a box it doesn't feel particularly natural it's not in, in touch with the surroundings of the countryside at all it's got you know the odd little plant here and there but it's a very artificial, artificial environment and it seems to me that one of the ways we can have a reverence not just for each other increasing that for each other but for the world as a whole and other organisms as a whole is 
through things like meditation and through things like you know being in contact with nature and actually see, setting out to increase your contact with nature you know as a goal in your life whether it is through meditation or through going out into the countryside and, and really sitting there and being at one with nature. I'll leave the last few words to James Lovelock. First and foremost, Gaia forces upon us a concern for the planet and its state of health and offers an alternative to our near obsessive concern with the state of humanity. It is in our own interest to live well with the earth. If we do not, Gaia will live on but with a new biosphere that may not include humans. I mean, Gaia, as, as, as Lovelock would say, is just interested in the continuance of its existence and a, and, a, and a biosphere of organisms. It doesn't have to be humans. In fact, the ones that have been here right from the very beginning and will probably be here right at the very end are microbes. Microbes are far more successful than humans are.